The Sunday Review with Tim Graham. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of The Sunday Review. We find out how we'll all be working longer as we put retirement on hold and why over half of young people are still too embarrassed or ashamed to seek help with their mental health. Paul Crayford is here to tell us how he got on with a 268-mile walk for charity and we're joined by Becky Cole from Siroc Sussex to tell us about the dance classes she runs in East Grinstead. Paul Tolmey will be talking to a Crawley-based dementia support group and will also be marking Emmerdale's 50th anniversary by chatting to Verity Rushworth, who played Donna Windsor in the show. And Samantha Day finds out more about a brand-new, unique floral show coming to Checkermead next month from the star of the show, Mig Kimpton. A new study from Evelyn Partners, in collaboration with the Centre for Future Studies, explores what life will look like in 2040. Those currently in the age group 58 to 76 already expect to work longer and put retirement on hold by an average of four years, while one in four say they've unretired, perhaps suggesting many are returning to the workforce to help navigate the cost of living crisis. To tell us more about the research, we futurist Dr Frank Shaw from the Centre for Future Studies and Henrietta Grimston from Evelyn Partners. Thank you both for joining me. Frank, if I can start with you... Is the dream of being able to retire at 60 now just that, a dream? No, for some um, it's perfectly possible, providing they've made the right uh, investments earlier in life uh, to do that. And in fact, uh, we're no longer constrained in the ways that we used to be in regard to even accessing our pension pots. So uh, from that point of view, no, it's not a dream. However... For many people, they are going to have to uh, live longer in the working environment than perhaps they had previously thought they would. And it's very feasible that uh, the state pension age will go up to 69 around uh, 2040. And what are some of the other reasons you think will make it tougher for people to retire in the future? All kinds of factors come to play here. I mean, including things like how much have they um, invested over the years, um, what their expectations are in regard to their retirement, and um, what kinds of um, lifestyle ambitions they may or may not have. There's a variety of different things that need to be addressed and taken into account. Um, by and large, I think a good number of people will find themselves in a situation where they're part-time retires. Um, some of them actually do go back to work for a while and then retire again. So there are various per permutations on themes. And all of this is to do with um, ensuring that they have the wherewithal um, to live a reasonably comfortable life. Henrietta, if I can turn to you now, what can we do to make sure we're financially set up for the future? Yeah, so this is all around planning. So you need to think as early as possible about planning for the future. But of course, your future is not just retirement. You know, for many people, there'll be aspirations to get on the property ladder, potentially to have families. Um, so, you know, you need to be juggling both the short, medium and long term goals. And, and probably for a lot of people, that means they're going to need some help with working out, you know, what they need to be doing and when they need to be doing. I think the other thing that this report touches on is, is quite a sort of changing environment, whether that's a changing family structure or whether that's actually changes in the workplace. So 
I think people also need to plan for the unexpected as well. Um, so it's all well and good saying, yeah, I want to retire at 60 and I want to be able to do lots of foreign travel. But, you know, what happens if, you know, you are ill for a period of time, for example, and you can't be working? You know, what impact is that going to have on your family? Um, so, you know, having sort of the correct insurance policies in place to protect you and your family, having cash set aside for a rainy day fund is just as important than, you know, planning for that dream retirement. Now, the report suggests that there's also likely to be a seismic shift in the world of work over the next decade or so, with perhaps up to 30% of jobs in Britain being lost to things like artificial intelligence. Do you think that's also going to add to the struggle for many people to earn what they need to earn within their working lives to afford that comfortable retirement? Well, we're looking at a, uh, a period which you might call um, creative destruction. Uh, it was an economist called Schumpter that um, first coined that phrase. But basically what it boils down to is out with the old and in with the new. And what is going to be happening is that jobs are going to be performed by technology and therefore lost in the, in the economy, in that say in the human economy. But technology is also going to be creating jobs so the, the net effect over time may not be as catastrophic as it sometimes is portrayed. But I think the, it's going to be a tough time, and I think it is going to contribute to the doubts that people will have as to what they may be able to achieve in later life. Um, the important thing is that they have to distinguish themselves from technology. And the way they do that, uh, as it says in the Evelyn Report, is they have to adopt new soft skills. Um, and not um, knowledge is going to become more of a commodity, in other words. Uh, so yes, that, that's, that's going to be the challenge. Um, I remember once um, listening to a presenter who asked the audience, you must ask yourselves, what will your child be able to do in 15 years time that technology can't? And that is a very, very challenging question. Um, and the, the answer in part is to the adoption of the soft skills uh, uh, attributes that you need to have so what are the key messages you're hoping people will take away from this report yeah so we've, we've already talked about the sort of need to plan and plan as early as possible so you know do not underestimate the power of, of starting your savings early on even if you have to stop for a period of time you know if you can set aside a pot of money for 40 years and invest it it's potentially going to work much harder than doing this sort of 10 years out from retirement. So you, know, you may not have the capacity to do it consistently throughout your working life, but where there's that opportunity early on, do start. And um, we've also talked about, you know, preparing for the unexpected. So explore what your options are, understand what your employer offers in terms of sick benefits. You know, that, that's a really obvious one. A lot of employers will simply offer statutory sick pay, which is about 99 pounds a week. That is not gonna be enough for a lot of households to live on. So explore what your options are if the unexpected comes along. 
Um, I think, you know, the, the other sort of thing to think about here is reach out and seek for advice, whether you're talking to a firm like ourselves or whether you're looking for sort of some of the free advice available on the internet from some of the government resources, there's a whole host of information out there. So, you know, don't be an ostrich and bury your head in the sand, you know, do make the time to have a look and explore the information and the advice that's available. And where can people go to find out more information on the topics we've talked about today? Yeah, well, the report itself is available on our website, which is evelyn.com. Um, and then the sort of types of websites, if you're not necessarily looking to speak directly to an advice firm, is things like Money Helper, which is a government-backed website. And um, you've also got Citizens Advice Bureau as well. So, you know, some quick searches on the internet will, will glean some pretty useful information. I would just say as a word of caution, be very mindful of what's out there on social media, because there is a growing trend of so-called advice, which is coming through on social media, which is not formally regulated. So please make sure you're getting information from sort of valid sources. Fantastic. Henrietta, Frank, thank you so much for joining me today. Enjoyed it. To read the Decades of Change for Life Milestones report in full, you can visit evelyn.com. That's E-V-E-L-Y-N.com. For more general advice on financial planning, you can visit moneyhelper.org.uk, that's moneyhelper.org.uk, or citizensadvice.org.uk, that's citizensadvice.org.uk. We'll post those links on Twitter at SundayReview107 and on facebook.com forward slash SundayReview107. This week marked World Mental Health Day, but new research from Young Minds, the UK's leading charity fighting for young people's mental health, highlighted that over half of young people are still too embarrassed or ashamed to seek help. To discuss this in more detail, I'm joined by Stevie Goulding from Young Minds. Stevie, welcome to the show. What did the research tell you about young people's mental health? Absolutely. So the um, research told us that, you know, a significant proportion of young people are still continuing to experience um, sort of stigma and discrimination. And I think we really need to recognise how difficult it is for young people to, you know, first open up and recognise that they need support. So any barriers that they face are going to be hugely sort of difficult to overcome. So again, you know, although we recognise stigma might have improved around sort of mental health and that conversation has, you know, um, sort of vastly improved over the last few years, too many young people are still experiencing those barriers when reaching out for support and not able to access the help when they need it. And we feel that this really, really needs to change. And that's what we're fighting harder as Young Minds, as an organisation for young people, to make sure that young people get the support they need whenever they need it. There's definitely more talk about mental health these days. So why do you think this is still such an issue for young people? Absolutely. So I think it can come down to a few reasons. Again, you know, sort of finding the words sometimes and articulate those sort of feelings and, you know, sort of being able to describe them can be quite challenging um, for lots of young people. Again, if they sort of read lots of media and press surrounding, you know, sort of mental health services at the moment, what we know is that long there's long and lengthy waiting lists that can sometimes reach up to sort of months and years. Um, and also, you know, that, that criteria, that those those thresholds that are used to sort of determine whether a young person can seek support or get the support that they need um, again can be really off-putting for a young person and might really dishearten them they might have al already had negative experiences about sort of accessing mental health support from services also so all of these can feed into why a young person might not be reaching out and might feel sort of quite embarrassed or ashamed to sort of find that help. 
What more needs to be done in this area, in your opinion? So really today is all about sort of hello yellow. For us, it's an opportunity to show support for young people and let them know that they're not sort of alone with their mental health by wearing something yellow on World Mental Health Day. And it's also an opportunity for us as a charity to raise those vital funds and awareness of sort of the policy, the campaigning work, the services that we provide to parents and carers, and also the direct support we took offered to young people via our website so that we can continue sort of you know supporting young people and their families mental health in the best way we can um, and last year we saw thousands of people all across the country um, you know get together and raise half a million pounds for us as an organization which was absolutely amazing and I guess we really want to make that bigger and better this year and, and sort of encouraging everybody at home to put something yellow on donate two pounds to us and uh, post a photo on their social media networks with the hashtag hello yellow to see what you're getting up to so we, we can create that real change for young people now you mentioned that you're trying to raise funds for your organization what sort of things do you do to help support young people Absolutely. So um, we work directly with young people and their families to do a lot of campaigning work. So we have a, an amazing group of sort of youth activists that campaign for political change, but they also go into sort of school settings, events, um, lots of different opportunities to, I guess, raise awareness and spread the message of the importance of, you know, really investing and making sure that young people's mental health is supported. We also have a dedicated parents helpline service for parents and carers who are concerned about a young person's mental health right from the age of 0 to 25 so we can provide lots of advice strategies and sort of signposting to other organizations um, and we also have a training and consultancy team who are working with professionals that you know are supporting young people um, such as teachers um, GPs doctors you know uh, professionals in mental health services um, to make sure that they are able to sort of support young people and their mental health in the best way possible so we do there's lots of different strands to our work Fantastic. And where can people go to find out more information? So we'd really encourage people to log on to um, youngminds.org.uk that we have a section for parents, a section for young people and a section for pro professionals and trusted adults. Um, so there's lots of advice, lots of sort of signposting, blogs, all sorts of content on there. Um, and we also have our uh, parents helpline service um, and that can be contacted Monday to Friday, 9.30 till 4pm on 0808. 802 Again, all of those details are on our website too. That's great. Stevie, thank you so much for joining me today. Amazing. Thank you so much for having me, Tim. And a reminder of that website address again, it's youngminds.org.uk. That's youngminds.org.uk. If you're a young person who needs support immediately, you can text YM to 85258. That's YM to 85258 for free confidential advice. The Parents Helpline is available weekdays from 9.30am until 4pm on 0808 802 5544. That's 0808 802 5544. We'll post all those details on Twitter at SundayReview107 and on facebook.com forward slash SundayReview107. A few weeks ago, two men from Brighton took on the immense 268-mile Pennine Way walk. It was all to raise awareness of issues relating to suicide prevention and to raise money for the national charity SOBS, Survivors of Bereavement by Suicide. 
The pair successfully completed their epic challenge, and one of them, Paul Crayford, is here to tell us how it went. Paul, welcome to the show. Remind us of the reason behind you doing this walk. Sure, thanks, Tim. So, yeah, one of the, the main reasons why we took on this challenge uh, was in relation to my, my brother, um, who took his own life uh, during COVID in 2021. So the walk was something that we discussed for, for many years before, because it's quite a challenge in terms of physically and logistically putting it all together. Um, but after what happened to my brother John, uh, it, it, we we took that collective decision to to kind of use the walk as a catalyst for wider awareness in terms of you know suicide prevention, obviously ideally, and then sadly for a lot of people in terms of you know the help and the resources that are out there um, if you are bereaved by suicide. And why did you pick the Sobs charity in particular to support? Sure. Well, I was largely unaware well completely unaware of of sob's existence before before this kind of um lightning bolt moment in in mine and my family's life and uh i got to connect with sobs down down in brighton uh where, where i live uh and they've just been absolutely fantastic the local group uh in brighton and hove is, is a super active group um massively supportive and i think certainly in the first six to six to 12 months after this event uh that they, they made an incredibly tough time uh manageable and bearable and sadly there, there are people joining the group all the time but it's fantastic to to know that that support is out there for for many many people so as we've said, you've just returned from this epic adventure. How was the experience? Did everything go to plan? I, th I think it's it's an interesting one because uh, I got back about kind of just over a week ago and it, there's a lot to process because obviously you come back from this, it was two and a half weeks uh, being away uh, out of the sort of daily routine. You come back straight into, into your kind of normal life and it's, it's a bit of a shock really. But I think overall, Tim, yeah, it, it did go, you know, marvellously well in terms of the logistical side of things that the, there is a lot to consider. It's not just about walking up, you know, up a hill down a hill there's a lot of logistics uh, behind it and there's a lot of variables um including things like the weather particularly when you're walking from derbyshire um to scotland at this time of year but we were incredibly lucky uh with with the weather we we only really had some some short downpours which was just incredible so that was a huge bonus for us uh on the way uh, so yeah, I, th I think I think it did, and, and the kind of support we got along the way, and, and anyone we talked to, and people that we bumped into who were doing the challenge, which is not not that many people, um, I think it, it really couldn't have gone that much better overall. That's fantastic. Were there any tough moments where you began to question your own sanity for doing this? Most days, <laughs> I would say, and <laughs> um, multiple times. Uh, yeah, I, I, I don't. I, I don't know there's lots of people who've done this walk uh so the pen on way over over quite a few decades it is it is the oldest national trail but for long distance walkers it's it, it it's a it's a bit of a pilgrimage for a lot of people i think because it is still regarded as one of the toughest um to do partly because of how isolated you are on, on a lot of the legs and there's um you know that the, there is a danger element to it sadly someone someone kind of died doing it uh, a couple of months ago that we found out on on the way around so it wasn't without risk and that that's why you know we were we were doing it in partnership my uncle and i um just for a bit of security 
Um, but yeah, absolutely. There were some, there were some moments, um, I think, you know, I turned my ankle in the first week. So I had to kind of, you know, get, get a support and drag myself through every day because we had no rest day. So every day was just pounding out mileage, um, you know, up to on the last day, it was just under 30 miles over the, the, the Cheviots, which the Cheviot is the, the, the kind of highest, kind of hill in uh in Northumberland so that was a particularly challenging day um but yeah the, you know one day I think two two or three days close to the end I kind of got into our B&B or whatever wherever we were staying and kind of my knee was about five times the size it should, should have been um so lots of ice that I don't know how much ice spray I used over the time I don't know how many blister um, compete plasters I used but um, if anyone's got shares in that company they're doing a lot better now trust me um, so yeah lo lots of lots of uh, lots of little bits and bobs along the way um, I've got to say that my uncle who's in his in his mid-60s in fact he got his free bus pass um, when we were on our way around he had nothing at all so it was me the, the the more junior apparently fitter member of the team who who was suffering and he was fine so also a bit inspirational for anyone in their 60s if you're thinking about doing something well, congratulations to you both. Um, how much did you finally raise? So we raised uh, just under four and a half thousand for for the charity, uh, and I've got to say, my my employer as well, a company called Aon, not not Eon, so that's A O N. They've been absolutely fantastic, and they've put in some match funding as well, um, and been hugely supportive um, throughout. But hopefully, you know, that those monies and, and that's across kind of, you know, 80 or 90 kind of different folks who, who've got involved with the fundraising effort, hugely appreciated, um, particularly at this time, obviously, as, as a lot of us are thinking about, you know, cost of living and, and what the winter holds. So I think in that environment, it's, it's just fantastic. And, and I know Sobs will be thrilled when the final payment's made. And if anyone is listening would like to support you, is it too late or can they still make a donation? Absolutely, Tim. Yeah, the the Just Giving page, which um, I, I think you'll you'll also send out um, with with the show, is still active. I'm not going to be kind of closing that down for at least another month. So if, if anyone um, has got any kind of spare change down the back of the sofa, which I know is a rarity at the moment, then obviously, you know, we and the charity would be hugely appreciative uh, of, of anything, anything at all that you can give. And indeed, you know, it, as, as I've said before, it's not just about money, it is about awareness. So if anyone has got any obviously questions or queries, or we can signpost people to, to anyone working in this area, then, you know, feel free to reach out to me. Fantastic. And have you hung up your walking boots or have you got more challenges in mind? Uh, I, it's, yeah, that's, that's a good question. And, and like a lot of these things, and I've done a few challenges um, in different sports over the years, you, you, I always find myself having this sort of afterglow for a bit of time, but you also feel a bit flat. It's, it's kind of like a bit anticlimactic once you've done it. Um, but the, the walking boots are definitely in, in cold storage at the moment, um, but I don't think it'll be that long before they're dragged out for something else. So, yeah, I think there will be there will be kind of future challenges. So watch this space. Well, congratulations once again, Paul. A truly inspiring way to raise awareness, funds and pay tribute to your brother. Thanks for joining us today and giving us an update. No problem at all, Tim. Thanks so much for, for having me. Really appreciate the support. And uh, yeah, thanks again.
And if you'd like to support Paul with a donation, visit justgiving.com and search for Paul Crayford. That's justgiving.com and search for Paul Crayford, spelt C-R-A-Y-F-O-R-D. You're looking for the link to Paul's Pennine Way Walk. You can also see highlights from Paul's adventure on instagram.com forward slash Paul Crayfish. That's instagram.com forward slash Paul Crayfish. And for more details on the SOBS charity, the website address is uksobs.org. That's uksobs.org. We'll post links on our Twitter at SundayReview107 and on facebook.com forward slash SundayReview107. One of the fastest growing dance phenomenon in the country is probably one you've never heard of before. It's called Ciroc and we've got a club right here in East Grinstead. Whether you're a nervous first-timer or a dance floor master, there's a class just for you. Becky Cole is from Ciroc Sussex and joins me now. Becky, welcome to the show. What is Ciroc? Hi, Tim. Thanks so much for having me. Um, well, Ciroc is, um, well, it's UK-wide. It's uh, it's not a style of dance. It's the name of the, the company. Um, so it's a social partner dancing night. Um, and we borrow moves from all sorts of different types of dance styles. So jive, tango, salsa, bit of cha-cha-cha in there as well. Um, so it's a whole mix of, of different styles of dance. What can people expect at one of your evenings? Definitely expect a, a warm welcome. We've got a really lovely um, uh, gang that come to all our venues across Sussex. Um, we've got a great team of staff who are really welcoming. Um, expect to turn up, um, learn a little bit of dancing, have a fantastic social night out, meet lots of new people um, and generally have a load of fun. And is there a typical sort of person who attends Ciroc classes? Um, I wouldn't say a typical person. We get a whole mixture of people. Um, so any age, um, 18 plus, we've got a dancer in his 90s, which is amazing. Um, absolutely, people um, come with their partners, come on their own. There's no need to bring a partner, even though it's partner dancing. Um, we absolutely, you know, we move on partners throughout the evening. So you don't need to bring anyone, come on your own. Um, so, yeah, all, anyone and everyone is welcome. And what are some of the benefits of Ciroc, would you say? Why should people give it a try? Um, well, it's it's great fun. Um, it's a great way to meet people, socialise. Um, obviously, the health benefits, you get fit. It's one of those great nights where you get fit without even knowing it, which is great because it's so much fun. Um, we've got all different styles of music. So whatever you're into, there's modern music, Motown, um, you know, some of the Latin music, a bit of swing music. So we have all different styles of music. So whatever you're into, you're, you're bound to have it at some point in the evening. Um, and yeah, it's just a really social, great way to meet, to meet local people. How did you get involved in Ciroc in the first place? Um, I turned up at um, our Horsham venue about 15 years ago, um, fell in love with it straight away. I can still remember that buzz from my first night. I got home and I could still, I could still kept 
have kept dancing all night um you know met so many great people um over the years I, I joined the crew we have people on our team called taxi dancers who are there to support all our new beginners um and they take you through all the beginners moves and support you with those I became a taxi dancer um and then a few years ago the franchisee that owned the venue asked me to become the teacher so I trained and became the teacher and then a few years later I had the opportunity to buy the venue over in Horsham which I did um, and since then have um, started East Grinstead six months ago um, and it's doing really really well and have also taken over a venue down in Hove as well so we cover the whole of Sussex. Great stuff so when and where do you meet in East Grinstead? So we're at Meridian Hall um, in East Court on a Monday evening. Um, doors open at 7.15 um, and our beginners class starts at 7.45. Uh, that lasts for about 45 minutes. Um, and then we have some freestyle dancing uh, for about 15 minutes. And then after that, at quarter to nine, we have our intermediates class. But if you're brand new and a beginner, don't panic. We don't make you do the intermediates class. At the same time, we have a beginner's practice session in a different room uh, where our taxi dancers will go over the three beginner's moves. So it, it doesn't matter if you're a novice, if you're more experienced, there's something for you throughout throughout the evening. And do people need to book or can they just turn up? No, just turn up. Yeah, there's no need to book. Um, we sort of at the moment we're we're getting about um, 50, 55, 60 people of an evening, which is great. No need to book. No need to bring a partner. Just turn up, and uh, we'll we'll see you on the dance floor. And the people able to try it out, maybe do a, a taster or something like that, just to see if they like it. Absolutely, yeah. Come along. Um, so it, it's uh, the the prices are eleven pounds for new members. Um, following on from that, it's it's nine pounds per for the whole evening. So that's all the classes and all the freestyle up until half past ten at night. Um, but we have a, an offer for brand new beginners. Uh, anyone new to Ciroc can take us up on our six for three offer so you're welcome to come along on your first night uh, see how you like it and then take us up on the six for three offer so basically you get six classes half price fantastic and where can people go to find out more so we have um, a, a website. Our Ciroc website is www.ciroc.com and Ciroc is C-E-R-O-C. Um, I've also got an email address. It's becky at sussex.com. So you can always get in contact for more information. We've got Facebook pages. We've got our Ciroc East Grinstead Facebook page, um, oh, sorry, group and our Ciroc Sussex page. So there's lots of information on there as well. Excellent. Becky, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks for having me. See you on the dance floor. A reminder of that website address again, it's siroc.com, that's C-E-R-O-C.com, or you can email becky at siroc.sussex.com, that's becky at siroc.sussex.com for more information. Classes are held each Monday from 7.15pm in Meridian Hall at East Court here in East Grinstead. We'll post all the details on Twitter at SundayReview107 and on Facebook.com forward slash SundayReview107. Forget-me-nots is a group supporting the carers of someone with dementia living in Crawley or the surrounding area. Earlier this week, Paul Tolmy spoke to Wendy Wilson and Beverly Loxton-Bown about the group on his mid-morning show. We're a support group for carers who look after loved ones who've got dementia. Just give people a bit of a break. They can bring mm. their loved ones with them. Um, we do an evening meal and we 
you do an all day club on day. a Friday. <laughs> um, and and we offer quite a few different aspects to what, what it's like looking after dementia and so the way people suffer with the stress of that when they're quite isolated. It's so it's so hard, isn't it? When when you've when you're in that situation, you you don't you can't prepare for it. There's no there's no guidebook on how to deal with it. You just have to make the mm -hmm. best of it. But you guys provide support for that to, and and it's so important, isn't it, for people to network and then th and to bring them together and then knowing that you're not alone. And very often, someone gets a diagnosis of dementia and then they're told to go away and come back in a year's time, and they don't know what they're going to have coming to them. They don't know what they've got to expect. Or what supports out there and that's something that we can actually give them when they come along and visit us mm. we we started in 2013 um we started because my dad had dementia and my mum was a, a bit of a loss because she didn't know anybody she thought she didn't know anyone else whose husband had dementia um and then we got talking to another friend of hers whose husband also had dementia so I sort of got them together for a coffee and then we ended up meeting once a week just for coffee. Um, and then we, um, I was working for Crawley Wellbeing, um, Crawley Borough Council, Crawley Wellbeing team at the time. And um, we said, why don't we try and set something up weekly um, that will support people. They can bring their loved ones with them or not, whichever's <coughs> best for them. Because often when you've got somebody that's got, dementia and you're taking them out and about in the community people feel maybe embarrassed by the way they behave or and that the forget-me-nots we don't care they can just come along and be themselves you know um, and it doesn't matter because everybody there is in the same boat everybody's been through or going to go through a very similar um, experience every dementia is different and everybody copes with it differently people say to me about stages of dementia and things like that but everyone's dementia is, is an as an, an individual, individual as, as a fingerprint mm. um and every as a carer i mean my for me we had my dad with dementia and now my mum has dementia to totally differently and my own um experience with my dad has been very different with my mum so that's what we try and help people with uh, we have all sorts of questions coming to us from how do I fill out this form that's 40 pages long to where can I buy incontinence pads mm. you know everything we're there for we're, we're mm. there for people just clear up for us if you can what, what is the difference between dementia and Alzheimer's they're both under well, the same umbrella yeah. as yeah. as dementia the, the Alzheimer's is a form of dementia mm. um, it's got a more um, plottable pathway you kind of know what's coming next Whereas, say, I mean, there's so many different dementias. It's about 150, yeah. 150 or so dementias or so. But vascular dementia is where it's, it's like there's little light bulbs in the brain mm. and they gradually go out and those bits stop working. And it's very intermittent and you never know what bit is going to hit next. No. Or what reaction that person's going to have to that part of their brain stopping working. It's a very simplified way of putting it. Mm. Mm. But there are so many different dementias and actually it's... The one thing they have in common is that there's long-term memory loss, difficulty sequencing. People go through different phases of it. Some people become very gentle and very quiet. Other people become quite loud or quite disinhibited. Some people become aggressive. But there is no way of knowing what, what's going to happen. No. 
we we spend a lot of our time um, guiding, advising, if you like, guiding um, carers as to how to deal with difficult situations and things. You know, a lot of um, a lot of people try and get the person whose memory is fading to come back to them, to to try and get them sort of you know, don't you remember this? Don't you remember that? Why? Why? That sort of and and that will agitate someone with dementia. Um, and then they wonder why, you know, they're, they're falling out with them or, you know, you, uh, and I've had, I've had it heard, you know, we've been married 30 years and never a cross moment. And since he's had this, all we do is fight. But when someone has dementia, if they tell you the sky is green, Go don't argue <laughs> with them. Don't say, no, it's not, it's blue. Just say, oh, well, yeah, it's quite an interesting shade of green. And yeah, I know I'm saying just say, um, but, but you have practice, to be in their world. Yeah, you you have to immerse themselves into your world, their world, um, and not try and keep reminding them that they've forgotten something isn't going to give them their memory back. But living in their world is going to go a long way to make everyone's life a lot easier. So you have to you have to go along with them in what? Yeah, they, yeah. absolutely, yeah. Well, absolutely. There is no point in trying no. to get somebody to remember that maybe their mum's passed or their dad's mm. passed. Mm. And and actually it's quite unkind as well because it means they have to relive them yeah. having died. Huh? And actually, why do you need that? You want somebody to be... Ha- if somebody wants to wear the same clothes every day, the carer wants them to be changed. Mm. Well, go and buy the same outfit seven times. You can have a clean outfit every day and they won't be any the wiser. Or you can argue with them. You'll never win an argument with someone with dementia. No. Because it's their it's their, their reality. Belief. Yeah. It is absolutely their reality. Um, you know, you could be you could you could take someone with dementia for a drink down the pub and offer them a drink and they say, No, thanks, I've just had one and you might have only just got there. But okay, I'll have one in a minute then. And then offer them again ten minutes later and they'll probably say, Oh yeah, lovely. I was wondering when you were gonna ask. You know, but you 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 can't you can't reason no. in your mind with someone that has dementia. No. It's just not gonna not gonna work. And very often people with dementia are quite frightened because mm-hmm. they don't know what's going to happen next. So actually if you're not agitated with them, they will stay calm with you. Mm. And if you can find mm. laughter and joy and you can find a big smile on your face even when you feel like you're falling apart, that person that you're looking after will feel safer. And that's where the group comes in. Absolutely. Absolutely. If you come to a group and you've got two or three people and they're all discussing things that, that really don't make much sense to the rest of us, it doesn't matter. No. Let them. If they're enjoying themselves and they're having fun, that's going to give the carer a bit of a break. And one will say to another, well, you should try doing it this way. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, I didn't think of that. Absolutely. So, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I can, I can remember a conversation quite a few years ago with three three gentlemen it was tuesday evening mm-hmm. there were three of our gentlemen sitting around now these are these are gentlemen of a certain age that you know you wouldn't have discussed things that the more modern guys do now um and they were talking about incontinence mm-hmm. and one was saying what pads are best. pads <laughs> are best you know for their wives they all had wives with dementia and you know, one one said, "Oh, I, I, they're so expensive, aren't they? I, I have to go here, and I have to. I'm in there every every other day buying them." And the other chap said, "Well, 
I get them from Amazon, you know, sorry, I'd do an advert there. And and they're much cheaper and you get them delivered to the door. And the other one said, the, the, doctor, one said gives the doctor gives them to them. You can get them from the NHS. So, and wow. And, and I sat back and I thought, do you know what? This is what we're here for. Mm. We're here not only for us to support, but for everybody else. Because in our belief, people that are doing the job every day are are the, are the experts. Are the experts. Mm. Mm. Absolutely. So we, let's um, let's focus on the actual club itself, uh, the, the uh, events that you run. Tell us about those. Well, we, we work out from the charcoal burner, which is on Furnace Green Parade in Crawley. They very kindly um, have facilitated our group for quite a while now, mm. and we're really appreciative of that. They're hosting us there um, three, twice, a week. twice a week, free of charge. Fridays we, is is our sort of um, is our lunch club, but it's it's more than that. We we sort of get together with from ten thirty onwards, and people can chat. And then about eleven thirty, we we have a bit of a game, a quiz, or or yeah, or live sometimes a bit of entertainment, mm-hmm. a bit of live entertainment. Yes. Um, lots of laughter and lots oh, of giggling. Yes. Yeah, we do have a lot of fun. You know, dem- dementia is often thought of a as a as dreadfully sort of hand wringing, terrible, terrible, and it and it can be, and it and it is for a lot of people. But at the at the knots, we just seem to have managed to to get that balance of of humour, and we do laugh an awful lot. And then we have a meal. We have and a endless tea meal. and coffee. And yes, biscuits. endless tea and coffee and biscuits and chocolate. Yes, <laughs> and chocolate biscuits. <laughs> um, and Tuesday evening is is Tuesday evening came about because we were running the the Friday lunch club, and we were talking about the club. And I said I'd love to do an evening club, but with devoting Fridays already, I didn't have anyone to run an evening club with. And Wendy went, "I'll do it," um, and she's probably regretted it ever since. <laughs> I've certainly become really involved. It seems to be the main part of my life. At I like, the yeah. I mean, we're we're all volunteers, um, and 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 while talking of volunteers, I mean, you you just you cannot put a price on a volunteer. No, they are they are absolutely priceless, and our volunteers are amazing. We couldn't run the club without. We couldn't. Them. We couldn't. But we do need some more. So, so if anybody out there is listening and wants to volunteer, even a very short period of time, or very occasional periods of time. There's always something that our charity needs. And we are a proper registered charity. We're mm-hmm. very proud of that. We and are. it's important to say as well, you don't necessarily need the dementia background. Oh, no. no. <laughs> Anybody that is kind, yeah. um, is gentle, likes mm. a laugh, but is able to, to, to support, would be very welcome. And, and if they want to know more, they can phone up. They can give a, give a bell and yeah. Beverly or myself will chat with them. And I mean, it, it can be behind-the-scenes stuff as well. I mean, we, It doesn't we, have to be directly you know, working with people. No. Things like a secretary or, as I was saying to you, Paul, earlier, we need somebody to look after our Facebook page. You know, it's it's that sort of thing that we, we want to grow so that we can help others, mm. but we can't grow without a big army of volunteers behind us. I mean, Wendy and I are pretty much... Full-time volunteers, yeah. and we don't expect other people to do that. They we do that because we love it, and it's yeah. it's what we uh, do. And we have two paid workers, yes. Joe and Helen, yeah, our coordinators, and they, they coordinate and the Danny, Friday. And <laughs> joined us recently, which is lovely. Um, and it just means that we don't have to do the actual running of the club; they do that part for us. Mm. So, yeah. but if anybody anybody wants to find out more, do give us a call. And if you'd like to get in touch with Forget-Me-Nots, you can call 01293 427 067 or 07486 869 939. 
That's 01293 427067 or 07486 869939. Or you can visit their website at theforgetmenots.org. That's theforgetmenots.org and knots spelt N-O-T-S. We'll post all the details on Twitter at SundayReview107 and on Facebook.com forward slash SundayReview107. Multi-award winning floral designer Meg Kimpton is paying a visit to the Checkermead Theatre next month with a brand new unique floral show called Meg and the Beanstalk. He joins Samantha Day on her Open for Business show this week to explain more. Well, uh, I am a uh, floral designer and I have some theatrical roots because I used to work in theatre. And so when I now have moved away from theatre, although I still find myself in theatres occasionally, uh, presenting an evening of flowers, of stories and of fun, because, of course, at this time we all need a little bit of fun. So my show is steeped in that. It verges on panto, although there's no... Uh, people dressing up as women or boys dressed as girls or anything like that. But it's a fun evening where I create flowers in front of an audience and um, and tell a little story and then some of my theatrical gossip stories that I've got from the years of working in theatre. And so basically when the audience come in, the stage is empty. Nothing. It's like a sort of magic show. Because <laughs> during the show... Um, I create these large designs with props, with music, with light, and then by the end of the show, the stage is full of flowers. And then the excitement doesn't stop there because uh, I get my audience um, to uh, pull out their names from a hat and they go home with the design. So it's an opportunity to win some fabulous um, flower designs and it's always lovely to see people struggling out of the theatre with a massive design and seeing them go down the high street. And, um, and that's the kind of um, outline of, of the show, and, and I kind of do it once a year in a way, uh, although I'm seen at, at many other flower shows during the summer. But, um, yes, it's a, a fun, fun thing. I'm talking to you from the studio, and I'm surrounded by all sorts of gorgeous, glittery things and... Um, Stands and um, I'm in full pre-production mode, as we used to say in the theatre. <laughs> uh, we, we normally associate flowers and that type of thing, perhaps in spring or summer. But now we are heading towards winter. So how do you get the flowers? Well, it's, uh, it's all about giving inspiration for how people might decorate their homes for Christmas. Obviously, mine always looks like a, a winter floral palace. Um, And so, of course, flowers uh, come in all through the year. And uh, and now we're so fortunate that we can get flowers from across the world. And so I kind of try and stick to seasonal flowers. So things like chrysanthemums and roses and carnations and uh, a few exotics, you know, maybe a few orchids. Um, So, yes, the access to flowers is, is amazingly good despite the fact that, you know, we've lived through that B word, that Brexit. (laughs) But we're still getting our flowers, and they're still flying in from all corners of the world and, of course, um, trucked in from Holland. Do you you get the people involved in your show, do you? Yes. This year, um, this is a sort of exclusive, really, because not a lot of people know at the moment, 
but there will be a point in my show that, uh, and I'm sure some of your listeners will remember that wonderful program that used to be on on a Saturday night that I used to watch called The Generation Game. <laughs> yes. And they'd have an expert in, and the expert would show uh, how to, I don't know, ice a cake or make a flower arrangement. And I am doing that in this year's show, where I will be calling upon two of my audience members to come and give me a hand and for them to create uh, a design that will feature in the finale of the show. Oh, how exciting. <laughs> Daunting, but such, it's such good fun. I haven't done it for many years where I've enlisted the help of the audience but um, this year I thought, yep, we need a lot of fun, and what better way than for me to sit back and, and watch two people struggle, I mean, uh, uh, <laughs> to, to work, uh, and uh, pr uh, produce two designs that I can use within the finale. Oh, fantastic. Oh, tell and me. they get to take them home as well. So oh, that's nice. There that's is a pay payoff that they do get their designs that they've made on stage in front oh. of the audience. Oh, that to be able to nice. take home. But we have a lot of fun. It's not any sort of hard, stern lecture. Mm. It is um, all done, as Kenny Everett used to say, in the best possible taste. Yes. Now, can you just tell us, how did you get into this, being a floral designer? Well, it all started 125 years ago. I used to be a chorister at Tewkesbury Abbey. And during the summer holidays, I used to help the ladies of the abbey with the flowers, and uh, that meant taking vast amounts of water from one end of the nave to the other. But I was dispatched one day to create my own design because someone didn't turn up at a very young age, and I kind of got hooked. And the reason why I got hooked was that although I liked to do art at school, and I was very good at collage, sticking lentils onto a piece of paper, very good at that, but drawing, it seemed to evade, uh, uh, avoid me, really. I could, I just was useless. And even now, my sketches, when I do work for the RHS, they always say, oh, can you send us a sketch? And I think, oh, my heart sinks. <laughs> and so I've adopted a sort of stick man um, approach to my um, sketches, whereas some of my colleagues in the floor world, you know, do these elaborate, wonderful, coloured in, whereas mine is all a little bit stick man. And... Um, and so flowers uh, throughout my life have always been my go-to thing. They're what I enjoy doing when I was um, doing proper work in theatre. I used to have flowers as my hobby. And, um, you know, some people, uh, I don't know, they climb mountains. Well, I used to flower range. And then I kind of hit a sort of um, momentous age when flowers were sort of beginning to take over, and I thought, no, it's time to move away from theatre and just concentrate on flowers. And then I left that big London city and um, came to the wonderful surroundings of Deal here in Kent. And I have my flower school, and, um, and now, of course, I do various projects for the RHS or local uh, uh, large cathedrals, and I enjoy it. It's nice to have a complete change, and, of course, for me, no two days are ever the same. No, I can imagine. Just talk us through uh, how you got involved with theatre. Um, well, the, the, the professional side of my life, basically um, exams, when I was at school, I wasn't very good at them, basically. 
no matter how much I tried, no matter how uh, much work I put in, I just wasn't good at remembering theories and chemistry and vowels for French. And, and so uh, I did a couple of A-levels, and let's just say it was a disaster. And so I uh, decided that um, I'd heard, where I was living in Bristol at the time, I heard that they were looking for staff at the Bristol Hippodrome. So literally the day after the exam results, I went and I got the job. And so I started work at Bristol Hippodrome. And um, one jo- I was so, so fortunate because one job led to another. I started tearing tickets and working behind the bar. And then I worked in a box office. And then one day someone said, would you like to be an assistant house manager? I said yes and went to Liverpool. And, uh, and then ended up eventually in the big London city working for a chain of theatres, including the Drury Lane, and then um, uh, managed to sort of leave house management and, and go to the backstage. So I became a producer and um, a company manager and fortunately did some wonderful, wonderful jobs, including working for the Royal Shakespeare Company. And so I flourished in that world, and it wasn't planned at all. It was absolutely by sheer fluke and luck that literally one job led to another. And, um, and flowers came along on the ride, and they were, as I've said before, they were kind of my little go-to activity. Mm-hmm. And so doing, it did complicate things when I was doing both. So if someone asked me to do a wedding, and I was also opening a West End show, that used to be some long days. But um, I, you know, decided that uh, I would now focus on flowers and leave theatre behind. And yet I find myself venturing into theatres with my own little show. And it wasn't certainly the idea to me to be on stage. Um, but it seems to work. And as it's only a little tour, uh, it's nice to get out and about and meet people. And of course, bring my flowers and designs and all my stories of various activities and tours and gossip and what it was like working with Paul O'Grady and, of course, Sarah McKellen and lots of other gorgeous folk. So, it, uh, yes, the, the theatre was really by luck. Oh, what an interesting life you've had. And I'm just looking at the list of awards that you've won uh, at the different flower shows. Yes, I, I um, put, myself, put, put myself through that process. It's a tr- tricky thing. But when I lived in London, of course, London was my, uh, the Chelsea Flower Show was my local flower show. And so I spent 20 years exhibiting um, at Chelsea and managed to attain um, 12 um, RHS awards and a few of those being gold awards and it's where that show is concerned of course it, it, everybody understands Chelsea everyone knows that if you get a gold medal you must be pretty good and so I was fortunate enough to do that and uh, culminating in representing the National Association of Flower Rangers with their massive stand it was a six meter stand in uh, 2018 and uh, we scooped a uh, a silver gilt award, one point off gold. I know that's <laughs> how it was. But I do enjoy the process of entering competitions. People think, and my friends certainly think that I'm crazy. But I do, uh, I do love uh, a competition. I love the process. I love 
putting it together on the day and hoping it all goes right and then the anxiety of waiting for the judges and the results and um, sometimes scooping a prize. Mig Kimpton in conversation there with Samantha Day. You can catch Mig at the Checkermead Theatre on Tuesday the 8th of November from 7.30pm. For tickets, visit checkermead.org.uk, that's checkermead.org.uk, or call the box office on 01342 302000. That's 01342 We'll post details on Twitter at SundayReview107 and on facebook.com forward slash SundayReview107. Today marks the 50th anniversary of ITV soap Emmerdale. The first episode aired on the 16th of October 1972 and began with the Sugden family convening in the fictional village of Beckendale for the funeral of a relative. Regularly regarded as a sleepy soap, it was revamped in the late 80s with car, helicopter and plane crashes, fires and murders. On his mid-morning show earlier this week, Paul Tolmy was joined by Verity Rushworth, who played Donna Windsor in the show. Well, I did 11 years, and then I snuck back sort of five years later for a little cheeky six-month stint. Yes. Um, so, really, it's probably about seven or eight years since I was in the, since, since Donna flew to her death. <laughs> yes. So, yeah, it's gone really quickly. It has. Yeah. So let, let's go right back, because it was, it, was it was 1998, wasn't it, when you, when you joined the show? But yeah. you, but but Donna had already. You weren't the original Donna. There was some. So, uh, I wasn't the original Donna. No. So what happened was um, the Windsor family came from London, but uh, Emmerdale and the set and everything. It's all set in lovely Yorkshire. So um, it was quite tricky with the schooling, I think, and logistics for the young the young member um, Sophie Jeffrey, I think her name is, mm. and she was the original Donna. So they made the uh, decision to recast someone locally just to make things easier with schooling and stuff. So it was just potluck, really. So in 1998, they put out a brief for a brunette, a 12-year-old brunette who lived in Leeds. So how, how, how aware were you of Emmerdale when you, were, when, when you were that age? Oh, not at all, sort of. I was quite a stagey kid, so I was more interested in playing Pocahontas uh, and, and, and uh, Little Mermaid at the time. Um, but I was, I was aware of how big sort of ITV and the station and everything. I hadn't watched a lot of Emmerdale. But what's really interesting is um, I actually was, I did extra work as a kid. So, mm. back, well, they're called background artists now. And um, I actually stood behind the original Donna Windsor once in a scene as an extra. And there's a picture of me behind her. Really? <laughs> Um, yeah, which is which is it. I was I was aware of it, but I didn't. What I mean is, like, I didn't realise how just how big a deal it was as a twelve-year-old. Sort of, you're just more interested in playing with your mates and cartwheeling. I think so. Mm. Yeah, I didn't know quite what I was in for at the time. And of course, the Windsors were a very rebellious sort of family, weren't they? They, they weren't, really, weren't a terribly quiet group of uh, group of residents. No, I've rather. done it all. I've done all the storylines. I mean, I've had a blue nose stud. I've had. Um, dying hair, I've had underage um, sex <laughs> I've had to go on Lorraine Kelly and talk about yes. sexual diseases at the age of 15 or oh, you name it she's um, she's done it it's an interesting upbringing because most of the stuff in the storyline you've never experienced at all in your whole life yourself <laughs> but it, it, it was it was extraordinary drama as well especially for people of, of that of that young age it was it, because Emmerdale, I think, in the, maybe in the last sort of few years, has, has become really, really prominent in those big storylines. Yeah, yeah. And you know what? It's really important that they get 
spoken about and mm. put out there because that's the world we live in. So um, I think what's really good with the soaps is then when they do tackle really, really um, serious and disturbing, maybe traumatic stories, and they always put helplines and hotlines at the end of the show. Mm. So um, I don't know, for example, if there was an, an, an abusive relationship or something like that, then um, at least, yes, it's a drama, but at least there is some help that maybe is advertised at the end of the show, which is, is a positive. Yeah. So, and also, you were, yeah. you were with you were you had such a great family around you. You had the brilliant Dina Payne, who was Viv. You had oh yeah. Um, you had yeah. Uh, uh, Adele Silver, who was Kelly. You, such a great group. Yeah. Of, I imagine they were such a great group of group of people off screen as well as on it. Do you know what? Such a lovely family feel, but such big characters as well, um, and a lovely difference of cultures. So they were they were the southerners, I was the northerner, but and and. I don't know, we had quite a bit of banter. Um, we were very professional actors, but I must say there was lots of hijinks on set. Um, I've got funny memories of Adele, like she used to hide a hairbrush behind a cushion and we used to like hide it and stuff like that. Because <laughs> she, 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 yeah, she, she, she had a London accent, didn't she? Well, so I was asked to do the accent to begin with. Yeah. Um, I was cast by um, Kieran Roberts, our original producer, and they they travelled, the family travelled up from London. So I started with the Cockney accent. Mm. Um, and then, um, a, sort of a few years in, what, what would probably happen like, in real life, um, I was allowed to phase out the accent because Donna had been to school in Yorkshire for quite some years. Um, it was sort of allowed to sort of phase out, which which I, I was quite glad about. It's yeah. one less thing to have to think about. And it happens with me. So I'm I'm from Yorkshire, but I now live um, with my partner, and we, and we live down south now. And he's like a proper Southeast London teacher. <laughs> and I find myself, sometimes my mum's like, dirty. And I'm like talking like a Londoner. So I think that it, it, it does happen. <laughs> and of course, you, uh, as you said, you, you came back, you, you left in 2009 and then came back a few years later. And um, yes. we saw that, and, and you were working with the brilliant Mark Charnock and, uh, the, oh, and yeah. the wonderful and the wonderfully brilliant Amelia Flanagan as well. Um, it's such a treat. They're absolute pros, and I must say, Amelia Flanagan is a superstar, and she she's just going to take over the world. She's so professional. Um, I think I met her when she was about five, and she was already just reading and learning her own scripts. And you'd get on set, and if it was a crying scene, that's it. She's crying. She and so lovely to work with, and we became well. We are really good friends off screen as well. We really had a bond, um, and absolutely loved, loved, loved working together with her. She's she's amazing. She's she's just going to be a Hollywood superstar. I think that one. And of course, yeah. um, and, th and then there's the video of you of uh, Donna saying goodbye to her on the um, oh. on the on the screen. How hard was that? I imagine that was pretty tough to do. It was really tough to do. Yeah, and um, I was really grateful to Kate Oates. It was all her doing. Kate's a producer at the time, and I remember her telling me um, there was a few drafts that came to her, and then she was like, no, it's not getting me, it's not getting me, it's not getting me, and then the final draft came through, and that was the monologue I got to perform. And um, thanks to her, it really did pull on the heartstrings, and we were lucky enough to um, receive a soap award for that, and which I was really proud about. And I think it was, it was just so well-written and um, poignant, and I just think I really tapped into it. But actually, I never, I didn't have kids at the time when I did that. Mm. Um, now I've got two little, two young children. And I think if I 
if you had to do it again, I think I'd be in bits. I don't think I'd get the words out. Um, but yeah, it was it was a beautifully written monologue. Yeah, it was, and and deservedly got the British Shape Award as well. Um, so uh. so what? So you left Emmerdale in uh, for for good in uh, oh, well, obviously for good because Donna fell off a building. Uh, but um, I did uh, so. It was 2014, and then you went into the into the theatre. Yeah, so my other passion um, it was always musical theatre. Mm. So um, I really wanted to tick that box. So when I when I left Emmerdale the first time, I went straight into Hairspray in the West End with Michael Ball and played Penny Pingleton, which was an absolute dream come true. Because um, I'd done um, like a three-year musical theatre diploma and A-level everything while I was filming Emmerdale up in Yorkshire. So I'd done all my training. So I was really ready to sort of spring into... The next thing, so I was lucky enough to get hairspray, which led on to uh, Maria in the Town of Music, and then I had this like career in theatre of doing um, Chicago and Annie, and then most recently in the West End, I went back in to play, uh, to play Lauren in Kinky Boots in the West End, which is amazing, um, and a completely different side to the industry, just just to, to what I've been doing before. But I was yeah, I was really really happy doing all my theatre. I really needed to tick that box. <laughs> As I said, I was quite a stagey kid. So I needed to get it out of my system. <laughs> is, it, is it hard to jump from, from to the stage after having been on the screen for so long? It was very different, stamina-wise. Mm. So I always say, like, working on set, you're doing six days a week, 12-hour days, and you're learning lines every night. So mentally exhausting, um, with no real live payoff. So you're in front of a camera, you don't know the, what the reaction is going to be. And with the theatre, it's a completely different discipline. You're live in front of an audience of, say, 2,000 people, and if it goes wrong, it goes wrong. So you've got to deal with it. Um, uh, and it's physic more physic. I would say physically exhausting, commuting into London, doing eight shows, running around. But you just get a massive adrenaline rush and a massive instant payoff from the audience. You so do. I just love both equally, really. And then, of course, you uh, you jumped onto the bead where, you were, where you were in Doctors. <laughs> yeah. Doctors was amazing. Absolutely amazing. I love, 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 love working at the Drama Village. Love working... Um, again, so Kate Oates um, was my producer on Emmerdale. Now she's over at the BBC, and that was amazing. Um, I played a lovely role. So I've got a semi-regular on Doctors as a receptionist, but she's absolutely bonkers. She's off her trolley. It was so lovely to play such a different character to Donna, um, and she turned into a bit of a stalker, just a bit kooky and off the wall. Um, not like me at all. I'm very... <laughs> I'm not bonkers. Although all my friends and partner will tell you that I am absolutely off the trolley. So I don't know if there were some similarities there, but I promise I've never stalked anyone. <laughs> <laughs> 50 years of Emmerdale. Are you doing anything to Marty or are you meeting up with any of your fellow cast members? Well, actually, I met up with Adele, um, who oh. played my sister, Adele Silver. Um, we, we went into, um, we met in London, actually, um, We've been friends since I was 12, so I won't tell you how long it is because I'm only 21, obviously, <laughs> but it's quite a long, it's quite a long time. Um, and we get on really, really well, so we've met up for drinks. I haven't met anyone else, actually, but maybe I should take a trip to Yorkshire for the, to mark the occasion and, and meet, ev- meet up with everyone. That's a really nice idea. Although although you've you've left Emmerdale now, Verity, does it ever really yeah. leave you? Never, no. And I'm so grateful to Emmerdale. It's... It, it, given me the career of my absolute dreams you know people work so hard times are really hard and here I am having 11 years on screen in Emmerdale and then skipping around the West End doing lots of theatre and I'm wanting to do more telly again now but um, I just feel so lucky and so grateful to Emmerdale for giving me that 
and the support and everything that it gave me and all the lear- all the learning I did working with all the amazing different directors and um, and then getting to do all the theatre um yeah I, I I feel I feel really lucky and it, it doesn't leave you like the the recognition is still there now I was um, Brighton on a night out and we were in a pub and it was a Hindu and then that was it Donna and we're all dancing on tables it's Donna we're like having a right good laugh um and then some days you know obviously won't get recognized at all you know I'm, I'm I'll go around the supermarket it's not like I'm posh spice or anything like that no. but um every so often yeah there's there's a recognition and it, it does feel really nice Verity Rushworth talking there to Paul Tolmy. And ITV is celebrating 50 years of Emmerdale with classic episodes airing from Monday night on ITV3. And that's it for the latest edition. We've got all the information on the features you've heard today on Twitter at SundayReview107 or on Facebook.com forward slash SundayReview107. I'll be back on air next Sunday morning from 10am on 107 Meridian FM or on MeridianFM.com or you can download the latest podcast. Until then, take care and have a great week ahead.